Marxism is packaging this all in a cycle of violence, creating what I'm going to call a mythological view of society in which we are carved up arbitrarily, capriciously, and with malice aforethought, we're carved up into different groups. In Marx's case, as we know, um, those were uh, groups of worker or manager class, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and so forth. Um, today, it's obviously an effort to silo us into made-up groups of race and to set us violently against one another uh, for somebody else's benefit. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Christian Culture, a podcast by Lutherans, for Lutherans, and for anyone else who will listen, where we promote genuine conservative Christian culture in our homes, churches, communities, and of course, in our colleges. This podcast is brought to you by Luther Classical College, Lutheran Conservative Classical a college for Lutherans. Check out our website at lutherclassical.org, subscribe to our magazine, and join the movement to start the first of many colleges by Lutherans for Lutherans to the glory of our God and for the salvation of our fellow man. I'm your host, Christian Preuss. I'm pastor of Mount Hope Lutheran Church in Casper, Wyoming. I'm also the chairman of the Board of Regents for Luther Classical College. Uh, today, we will be discussing and critiquing the woke mantra, diversity, inclusion, and equity. So the acronym there is D-I-E, which is very fitting because it spells die. And since these are, these, this acronym is the, what Philip Reef, who's a sociologist and historian, calls a death work. That is, works and policies that kill culture and then replace it with chaos. So it removes virtue like self-control, patience, faithfulness to the word of God, as St. Paul lines it out, with instead anti-virtue, which would be self-pity, which would be laziness, which would be suspicion of others. So. The one word we want to focus on today is diversity. What does this mean? What is this word's meaning? What's its definition? Why should Lutherans be against its use? Is it somehow racist to speak against diversity? Is it sexist? Is it homophobic? Or is it sane and loving and Christian? We're honored to have with us today as our guest the Reverend Dr. Gregory Schultz. He's professor of philosophy at Concordia University, Wisconsin. He's a dear brother in Christ, and he's a humble confessor of holy scriptures. I am privileged to call him both uh, a friend and a teacher. He's taught me a lot in the short time that I have known him. Welcome, Dr. Schultz, and can you please tell our viewers a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks, brother. Um, so, Pastor, I am, um, at least for the moment, a professor of philosophy at Concordia University, Wisconsin. Um, one of the reasons that we're talking, and that I suppose we both have time to do it, is that I'm currently on suspension from my university. Um, the center of that seems to be the uh, article that I published in Christian News 
on their February 14 issue, Woke Dysphoria at, at Concordia. So I'd just like to mention, as we're probably going to talk about definitions and concerns from that essay and to amplify those for your listeners, I just wanted to mention that I am a pastor also, like you in the Confessional Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I'm actually coming up on my 40th anniversary in the ministry, uh, Lord willing, this summer. Uh, my ordination is in June. Um, and I have uh, the privilege of serving, um, and I have been for about the, the last two and a half decades or so, on the uh, higher learning side of the work that we do as confessional uh, Lutherans. So I have uh, been teaching at the college level. I also do some teaching for one of our Concordia seminaries in their PhD program. And uh, I'm, I'm extremely happy also to be a member of Doxology, which is the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. Um, do you know, I, I believe, Christian, by this point, I've actually had the privilege of sitting down with or standing and sitting with probably pretty close to a quarter of the brethren in our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, where my uh, very big concern is to talk about what I've called in the one of my book titles, The Problem of Suffering, uh, but which is, is also, I think, well understood as uh, a call to the church and to each of us uh, to be ministering to people who are suffering and dying with the words of Christ, especially in the Psalms of Lament, the chapters and books of, of Scripture that talk about Psalms, uh, talk about lament, such as the Psalms and Jeremiah and Lamentations. Mm -hmm. I also think that's a big part of the New Testament. So I'm very concerned about pastoral care too. Also, though this isn't our topic, uh, I, I have been heard to say that Lutheran theology exists for the purpose of informing pastoral care. Um, so what what brings things about today is something on which I I believe I have some substantial stuff to offer from the philosophy and the analyzing culture side. Um, I also teach the uh, course on Christ and culture, by the way, at, at my university when I'm allowed in the classroom. And I, um, I've been uh, very very concerned to be talking about cultural issues um, in terms of Western thought, which I, I get to teach a number of courses in. Um, so right now, though, my big concern is with what I will call the means by which. I think this is what we Lutheran pastors and thinkers and people bring to the table. So well, we, we could, and maybe we will, talk about some ins and outs of wokeness uh, which goes by the names of cultural Marxism and, and so forth also. Uh, but it is the means, as I was saying, where, where I think we Lutherans have been, uh, you know, no thanks to us, it's, it's God's doing, but where we've really been sharpened in our focus on how has God chosen to come to people. So it's the means of grace in our usual way of talking. It's the theology of the cross, which we love to talk about with anybody who will listen. Maybe even some people who don't want to listen will still talk about it. Um, and uh, and that's where I find myself offering what I hope is both an intellectually informed, but especially a, a very pastoral concern for wokeness and its incursions into the church and into my university, for example. Amen. Uh, I, I love the fact that you often refer to yourself and to your colleagues uh, as pastor professors, pastor professors, because we don't want just a bunch of academics right? Just a bunch of egg head heads. We want 
Ouch. Um, <laughs> we want uh, we want professors who actually care for the people, because as you said, the purpose of theology is the glory of God, and it's the salvation of of man. And so we have to be all theology has to be pastoral theology. And you, in your confession um, against uh, this sort of anti culture um, represented in uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, you have. Uh, set forth a clarion call um, and been a pastor concerned about real people, that they be taught the real truth from their real savior. And so what I wanted to do to start our conversation today uh, was to have you explain not what you're speaking against, but rather what you are promoting, what you're speaking for. And I thought a great way of doing that would be for you to speak a little bit about the seal of Concordia University, Wisconsin, because it's a great seal. We'll put it on the screen for our viewers, but I'll also describe what it is. It is an open Bible, and the Bible says Biblia Sacra, which is Latin for Holy Bible. And that Bible is resting on other books that are labeled Homer, Cicero, Shakespeare. So could you uh, give us an idea of what it is that a Christian university, a Lutheran university, should promote the educational philosophy kind of based on that seal. Well, sure, that seal is a pretty interesting example. I, I don't know uh, if you feel this way. Sometimes my first thought on things is to be a little contrary and then, then to get more gracious about it. But I, I think actually that it would have been better to have that Bible um, in the foreground or or as the foundation for delivering those other books. We could we could also though just you know go with the way the symbol is. So Holy Scripture is the uh, supreme authority. I teach a fair amount of ethics, uh, including bioethics, and the terminology that that we use for that, and I think we should keep in mind for our teaching is normativity or the norm by which we teach. Right, so. We have our Lord Jesus saying, for instance, in the end, as he's quoted at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Um, so the authority that originates in the Holy Scriptures, you know, is a really great feature of our, of our university seal. I'm going to take a moment to lament that the other books listed there may or may not be familiar to all of our students and professors. Um, I've got a lot of colleagues, please don't mistake this, I've got a lot of colleagues who are working very hard and faithfully um, when they're teaching Shakespeare, they're, they've got their Bibles open. Um, I, I know this because we've got a, a wonderful group of folks on campus um, who are delivering what, what we have called the um, the great texts pathway part, uh, an optional part of our curriculum, which is all about texts. And, you know, in the couple years leading up to getting that um, okayed and worked into the routine of the university, uh, we'd meet at least once a week over lunch and go through great texts. But it was primarily scripture, of course, mm -hmm. to judge whether the texts were really that great or, or what to be said about them. So I think we can go along with that. Um, but it's it's the authority of Scripture, and I'm just going to linger on that for a minute. When you ask what it is that we have to offer, 
I think that if I can just use the term conservative folks in a more general way, though you and I would probably prefer to identify as confessional and classical, I think those are two wonderfully reinforcing terms, too, um, right? So um, if, if you just talk about conservative things, I think that a lot of conservative-minded people would say that, ah, I get that authority thing. So Jesus is the ultimate norm or authority. The scriptures, which have formed huge, huge portions of Western culture, right? Um, these are ultimately authoritative. That makes sense. Everybody's going to be operating with some kind of norm. This has got to be the best norm ever, maybe even for disbelievers. Um, however, that's not all. So Jesus not only has what we could call legal authority, which is, you know, he's going to judge the living and the dead, so you better watch out. Um, but he also has moral authority. And this is, I think, uh, thoughtful folks would agree, this is something that we urgently need. Not just the um, opportunities to say, ah, we believe in an objective truth, which we certainly do, but to know that that objective truth is incarnate and and that Jesus isn't objective in the sense of, you know, Plato's idea of the good being beyond all being or, or, or something like that. Though, you know, Plato's instincts are right. He doesn't have scripture. He doesn't have the Messiah. So what we've got is a Lord, um, not only whom we have to serve because he's going to judge the living and the dead, but a Lord that we have to serve. We just have to. I mean, look at what he did for all people. Uh, to become a human being while remaining God in order to suffer and die and rise from the dead, uh, to guarantee our resurrection in him. Um, how can we not serve him? And surely that's what you and I mean when we talk about Lutheran theology, isn't it? It's, it's winsome. It is substantial as surely as it is historically true. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, and I think that when we talk about the Bible as authoritative, uh, we can never act like it's just this 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 uh, ancient document that we base everything on, but it never actually comes to the fore. But rather that this actually is the greatest history. It is the greatest literature. It is the greatest moral teacher. It is authoritative also, not just technically, but in its use. And we um, uh, and we need to use it. Uh, in, in education, obviously in our, in our churches, and with the actual conviction that there is no greater book, that the 66 books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are uh, the wisdom from God himself, and that we will never ever read anything or discover anything that is greater wisdom than this. Um, That's very well put. And in that sense, I, I agree with you that everything else kind of should be built on the scripture, though uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words if you can actually describe the words, right? Uh, uh, to put yeah, scripture, get it. yeah, to put scripture high is wonderful. All right, now um, you like to teach um, that uh, in order to talk about something, you have to actually know what you're talking about. That is, uh, we have to define yes. terms. So that's the first thing that we're going to do today, and we're going to define this word diversity. So I did my grad work at the University of Iowa, so I thought I would take the definition of this word diversity from the University of Iowa website. Actually, I just Googled diversity, and because I, 
uh, Google has memorized, right, uh, what I look up. <laughs> it gave me University of Iowa's uh, uh, website. Yeah. And uh, this, uh, you, could, you could get it from University of Iowa, you could get it from any university and almost any woke business. This is their uh, definition of diversity. And we'll put this up on the screen for our viewers. Diversity refers to all aspects of human difference, social identities, and social group differences, including, but not limited to, race, ethnicity, creed, color, sex, gender, gender identity, sexual identity, socioeconomic status, language, culture, national origin, religion, spirituality, age, disability, slash ability, and military veteran status, political perspective, the kitchen sink, and associational preferences. I added the kitchen sink, sorry about that. I couldn't, I couldn't help it. So Dr. Schultz, does this sound like a good definition of, of what people mean uh, by diversity? Do you know, I think sadly it does. And, and what I mean is on the one hand, you and I were just hinting about our, our training um, that the first act of the mind is really the first thing to do. So what is this thing that we're talking about? Um, I also couldn't help but think uh, that as you were rehearsing those various terms and, and the kitchen sink under the idea of diversity, that's actually um, reminiscent of the way Vadi Bausham has been talking about that on his YouTube uh, channel or presentations. So... Um, I think I'm just going to, to take the lead from you and, and say from um, Dr. Beauchamp, too, let, let's all just comment that it is beyond belief that folks can actually go around and say, we don't really know what these words mean. We have, we have no idea why people would get so concerned about what sounds like a perfectly wonderful word such as diversity. And um, because of the propaganda-like assault outside of and within education, um, we're, we're actually made to feel, well, maybe I don't even want to ask any more questions because if I don't agree with this, I'll be branded a racist. Yep. And I don't like being called a racist because that goes against my faith, among other things. Um, so I think that, that um, we can use other terms for the umbrella under which we're discussing diversity, such as social justice, cultural Marxism, as I mentioned before. But how about, how about the notion that we look at diversity with the full description that you gave? And the reason I didn't agree automatically that's a good definition is because it's not a definition, actually. It is a, a ridiculously universal <laughs> description of everything that's being, what, assimilated, assumed, crammed into... Um, this particular word. So we know something big is going on here, but I think if Socrates were talking, he'd say, well, come on, you just gave me a description that suits your opinions. What does this really mean? Yeah. Now, the, the term diversity, too, I'm still thinking about the university seal that you, we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, I, I wrote an article a few years back at the time when our university was undergoing a, a revision of its core curriculum which is, is always a terrifying time. <laughs> uh, be, first of all, because of great ideas that die in committees around there. And then 
it's a little bit like um, a constitutional convention. Mm. You know, where you think it'd be great to, to get everybody back on the same page with the Constitution, but when you have a constitutional convention, the text is up for grabs for everybody. Mm-hmm. And and about the last thing we need today is that sort of um, ability to censor and uh, line-item veto sacred documents. Well, anyhow, so I offered the suggestion that um, for a, a number of reasons, what may be the case is that our university isn't actually a university. It's a diversity. Mm. Now, the... <laughs> Diversity, you know, to biblically-minded confessional folks and our, our neighbors listening in, you know, welcome. Um, diversity is going to smack of what the Apostle Paul talks about when he's actually describing the acts of the sinful nature. So, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, factions, envy, and the like. So, factionalizing people is what diversity has come to mean. Um, it, it certainly doesn't mean a diversity of thought, alas. It means a, a monolithic, you better listen to this fascist kind of understanding of knowledge. It all belongs to the government, right? It, it all belongs to somebody else telling us what it's going to mean from here on in. Um, so I mm. offered this, this description in in my essay, Woke Dysphoria at Concordia. So I had, had begun, as uh, I hope your listeners either know or will consider reading up to see, I had begun by saying that um, my Concordia University is experiencing dysphoria, a, a kind of ongoing restlessness, because it is coming under the influence of wokeism. Now, this is that overall umbrella that we're going to address, in a, Lord willing, in a few uh, talks. I call wokeism a potent cocktail of progressivism, neopragmatism, and Marxism. Uh, I know we don't want to, one of, one of those academic philosophy lectures here you, you were worrying about before. Um, progressivism is people who are so far ahead of things that they have outstripped all of our texts and all of our shared thinking. Uh, neopragmatism would harken back to the pragmatism of John Dewey, uh, among others, the founder, godfather of public education in the United States. Um, this is what obsessively, religiously, a scientific viewpoint. Neopragmatism includes the denial of capital T truth by people like Richard Rorty. We could talk about that later. And uh, Marxism is packaging this all in a cycle of violence, creating what I'm going to call a mythological view of society in which we are carved up arbitrarily, capriciously, and with malice aforethought, we're carved up into different groups. In Marx's case, as we know, um, those were uh, groups of worker or manager class, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat and so forth. Um, today, it's obviously an effort to silo us into made-up groups of race and to set us violently against one another uh, for somebody else's benefit. So that, that's the general umbrella. I offered some synonyms for that before. So here is where I give something of an explanation of our term for today, diversity. I explain that there, these are um, aggress, aggressive, progressive, woke mantras 
that have been showing up in our presidential search and vocabulary and stuff around our campus. Uh, so a mantra, right, would be somebody convincing you it's the truth just because they keep hitting you over the head with it. So you know, hear, you hear long enough that people in the past used to believe the world was flat, yeah. and pretty soon you you leave your university thinking people in the world in the world used to believe that the Earth was flat when really nobody actually did. Yeah. Um, so diversity in this mantraized woke way, diversity refers to a racialized diversity with unsubstantiated assumptions of white privilege and systemic national or institutional racism that formed the mythological basis of Harvard's critical race theory in the 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. So diversity is not any kind of respect for the different ways we think, um, the different glories of, of individual thought that we might bring to the table or bring to church, um, but it refers specifically to skin color and it's doing it, as I said before, in a Marxist manner um, to, to play Yahtzee with, with us and our society and keep on rolling the dice, hoping that something, well, more woke or more communist is going to come out of it. Um, diversity decidedly has nothing to do with respecting people's individuality. It has everything to do with collectivism. Uh, and I, I just want to stress that word. It's a mythology. So if... if uh, now or later, you know, we were interested to talk together with your audience um, uh, about that. We could dip back into Hegel, a philosopher from about two centuries ago, who actually thought that philosophy could be done mythologically as a German idealist. Um, didn't believe in Christ, didn't want to hear the Bible, uh, but thought that it'd be real nice to use those words like Geist, Spirit, and... and uh, redemption and so forth, in his own mythological way. Mm -hmm. um, what, what arrogance, right? Yeah. Uh, but there we are. So how's that for diversity so far? Great. I uh, want to go back to, to Marx. Now, is it true with Marx that he uh, thought this would happen naturally? That is, that the uh, proletariat would naturally rise up and overthrow uh, the bourgeoisie. Um, obviously, that never happened. Um, and instead, the way uh, I've, I've, I've read it is that uh, the elites took it into their own hands, right, to try to start the revolution themselves because it was not happening naturally. So you see that with the Bolshevik revolution, but then also academically, it's kind of this presumption that the elite need to um, convince us that we are divided, right? They need to convince uh, the um, blacks that uh, they are a historically oppressed group and to feel that way and that there is systemic racism because it's not happening naturally, actually. It has to be taught to people. And that's where that same tactic seems to be used, not just with race, but also with gender identity, with uh, sexual orientation. Um, that is, that it doesn't happen naturally that they rise up, but rather they are, um, they are pricked toward it. They are led on by the, by the elite. Is that a, a, a good description? Yeah, I think that's, that's a very fine historical summary. I, I, I don't want to let Marx off the hook, though. I think that, that Marx thought this would happen naturally 
with the same sincerity that President Putin uh, thinks or or has his his um, apparatich right teaching the world that he wants to restore the former Soviet Union. There's nothing. There's nothing actually grand there. It's it's more um, it's more a matter of determination. So Marx actually said that he was not content at all to talk about ideas and examine them together, but he wanted to make a difference. Um, God preserve us from people like Marx who want to make a difference in society. But again, please notice the means by which he's doing it. The means by which Marx is doing it is to put classes of people at war with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is why we call this cultural Marxism. This is the tactic um, to put classes of people against each other um, that, that is behind the, the idea of diversity in DIE. Well, thanks. I'm going to, and again, I know I'm being a little contrary here. Um, I'm going to say again, though, we don't want to grant the thought that there is anything cultural happening in Marx or in Marxist-Leninism or in Marx-Leninist-Stalinism. It's all anti-culture. Amen. This depends, of course, on what kind of a robust definition we have for culture. So we could talk about that if you'd like to. I know you and I have um, outside of the program. But it's it's um, anti-cultural, and it's distinctly anti-Western cultural. So again, the means by which things are being done is to to overthrow, and pardon my French, to say the heck with the texts, also the heck with people. We are going to get these changes that we want because we think, well, maybe we don't think. We just want it to be done. Yeah. No, thank you for that uh, correction. And uh, you're not being contrary at all. You're being a teacher. Uh, that's actually uh, Philip, uh, Philip Reef uh, that I mentioned, his talk about death works. That's exactly his point. Yeah, this is yeah. anti-culture. Yeah. It is not replacing it with uh, anything but chaos. It, it, it kills culture, yes. kills virtue. I loved what you did when you brought up uh, the, the uh, dissensions, factions, that this is one of the vices, one of the works of the flesh that St. Paul brings up. Yes. Uh, factions forced diversity, right? And those then um, are the the opposites, the enemies of what Paul later mentions, and those are our virtues, right? The, the 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 fruits of the spirit, which include faithfulness, patience, self control, and faithfulness. Uh, this virtue is obviously directed. It's a directed virtue. Faithfulness to what? Well, to God. Faithfulness to His Word. Faithfulness to your wife because God gave her to you, right? Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's uh, beautiful that we can see also that contrast right there in the Bible. Um, I wanted to move on to talk spe- specifically about race unless you wanted to talk about something first. I'm, I'm at your disposal. All right, great. Uh, I like being in charge. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, you, you. That's what your brothers say, by the way. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, we can't all be in charge. That's 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 the truth. Yeah. That's why you need a father in a house. He had a he had a tough job with us, but he did a good job, um, at least with my brothers. Okay, so you promote what Saint Paul calls and what you call, therefore, uh, a philosophy kata Christan, uh, that is a philosophy according to Christ. You get this from Colossians chapter two. 
Um, yeah. Could you, yeah. uh, first off, explain this concept? And then also, if you would, I'm going to quote some scripture. We'll put it up on the, on the screen also. Talk about how scripture speaks of different nations and ethnicities. So I'm thinking in particular of Paul's statement in Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then you already mentioned Matthew 28, the grand words of our, of our Savior in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Same word there, uh, ponta ethne. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's a lot there. But if you could do those two things, explain what you mean by philosophy, kata kristan, and then also kind of apply it to um, how Scripture speaks of race. Oh, thanks so much. Well, how about first, if we talk about the mess that is being made of things by people who do not want to listen to Jesus on the, on the issues of race, okay? So, um, for whatever reasons, um, Concordia University in, in Mequon a while ago instituted a, a black student union. Uh, it is perhaps interesting that there aren't any other student unions that I'm aware of that are organized according to race. Um, <clears throat> but if you take a look at, at what our black student union has been about and what they have been teaching, um, I notice, as uh, Joy Pullman said in her very welcome article in The Federalist earlier this week when we're taping things, um, I noticed that they are, are picking vendors that that particular student organization uses on the basis of skin color. Um, I, I am aware that they have uh, been issuing charges of racism against at least one of our professors from Concordia in public on TV or a website and, and so forth. But in, in the middle of this, here is not just an emblematic thing, but, but a reason why um, you just have to say this wokeism and its notions of diversity don't work. Not only does it not work, it's malicious. Um, so the, the um, author, uh, Joy also mentioned this in her article, the author that is recommended or has been recommended by the leaders and apparently the students now too of our Black Student Union at Concordia University, Wisconsin, is Ibrahim Kendi. Ibrahim Kendi um, is, has been very outspoken on, on this issue of the place of Christ. Now, so just for instance, um, I, I think I shared this link with you this morning when we were texting, hey, Christian. Um, so maybe you, you can put that up to make available to people. I don't think it would be hard to find this in a search. Oh, absolutely. We'll do that. So, yeah. So Ibrahim Kendi um, espouses and, and argues for liberation theology versus what he calls savior theology. Now, in the particular video that um, a couple pastors shared with me, you will see Ibrahim Kendi sitting down in, I think it's a Methodist church somewhere. Um, he's up on the dais. Uh, there's no altar behind him, but there is this huge, amazing, looks like a stone cutting or a mural 
which has Jesus speaking in the passage we've mentioned. This is now going to be the third time in our, in our short discussion. All authority has been, in, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And seated there in front of those very words of our Lord, Ibrahim Kendi says that uh, people used to, used to teach what he dismissively called savior theology, which in his own words is all about reaching people and saving them through the word and the work of the savior. What he promotes instead is what he refers to as liberation theology. Um, I'm not sure that this is the liberation theology that you and I were being warned about in seminary. Um, it, it is some kind of nasty um, evolved variant of this fatal virus. Liberation theology is, is actually kind of a church covering for power politics. And Kendi has been outspoken in saying that the way to deal with racism in the past is to practice racism today. That's right. And the way to deal with people who aren't respecting our contrary racism today is to practice more racism in the future. So get this. Forget about Jesus and let's practice racism. This is the mention of diversity from Ibrahim Kendi being taught to and promoted by an official group at my university. Now, as I said, some of the students identified as being from that group have actually gone uh, public in interviews in talking about one of our uh, professors being racist. Um, I think my observation is, first of all, that um, you know any of us professors who are worth our salt would bear no ill will toward those students for saying that. Um, at the same time, I'm not going to talk down and say that they're little children. These are adults who are responsible for what they're saying. But here's my point. What kind of awful education has somebody been handing these immortal souls that this is all they can think to say? I think it's coming by Ibra from Ibrahim Kendi, obviously, and people who are promoting his opposition to savior theology. All right, so what to do, right? We could probably stop at saying, well, it's a matter of truth in advertising. If, if my university is a Lutheran university, then this sort of stuff shouldn't be going on. That's true enough. Uh, but we can also seek to overwhelm this with the truth of Christ and his gospel. So the, the right thing to do is to call for repentance on the parts of these students and the folks sponsoring, promoting, and defending such a factionalizing thing as a black student union that's doing this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the only way that can be done, as I say, is Christ himself. And that leads us to the Colossians 2 verse. I'm shamelessly going to mention, still smarting from that academic comment in your opening, uh, shamelessly mention that uh, the book of Colossians is our official book of the Bible for our philosophy department at Concordia University, Wisconsin, just as we have some wonderful gifts from the church in our theology department. I mean, wow. Um, we also have, I get to work with um, four guys, if you count our colleague over at 
uh, at our uh, other campus in Ann Arbor, I got to work with four other people um, headed up by Angus Manoush, who are just astonishing and, and huge gifts to the church. So anyhow, we've decided that Colossians is our signature book for our core course on Western thought and worldview, which we all teach. And here we come to um, a, a very important passage. Now, this is important historically because the church father Tertullian used this when in his prescription against the heretics, he appears to be arguing against philosophy um, to court, as we say, you know, the whole shoot and match. Philosophy is always wrong because he says it leads to heresy. Now, that, that's a pretty strong case. Then the passage that he refers to is Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, to back, his, back up his point. Uh, may I say I bear Tertullian no ill will either when he says, you know, what, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Though, if you'll pardon my, can I say this, scriptural snarkiness, <laughs> the, the, what, what the relationship is, is that Jerusalem went to Athens during his second missionary journey. Uh, you know, read all about it in Acts 17. St. Paul, who obviously knew his Greek philosophy, delivered this smart weaponry attack on the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Athens. Okay, back to the actual story. <laughs> uh, so in Colossians 2, we have this verse that uh, Tertullian, bless him, he's in the thick of, of this crucible of persecution and stuff. Um, he's wrong, but but uh, he quotes Colossians 2. Now, Colossians 2, as, as we know, and, and why not recite it for our listeners, um, has St. Paul saying this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Now, the point that Tertullian missed is a point that you might miss if you weren't familiar with the Old Testament when you hear Jesus say, watch out for false prophets in his Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. So Jesus is not saying prophets are always bad. Yeah. He's saying there are bad prophets. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm quite sincere when every semester I, I tell my first-year students, if this passage says what Tertullian claimed it says, then you should not be taking this class. <laughs> And, and I should be using my, my uh, credentials to try to get into the theology department. Yeah. Um, but actually, what St. Paul is doing is he's explaining there are two kinds of philosophy, right? One is the bad philosophy. It's identified by two criteria. It's based on human tradition and the stoichia, that would be the ABCs of this world. Important to mention that world in the New Testament, I don't think hardly ever means just the population of the planet. It means the autonomous people in the world, the people who are opposed to Christ, uh, as we all naturally are, right? Mm -hmm. Blind, dead, and enemies of God. So it's referring to the unregenerate people. So philosophy done according to mere human tradition, that might be a spot where, where Luther would stick in another sola in there, right? Anybody in German would understand. It's not just human tradition, it's human tradition alone, and who would be basing things on the stoichia of this world. That's the bad philosophy. The alternative is swelling Bach music, right? Rather than philosophy which is based on Christ, kata Christon. 
And if you don't mind this reference, I know it's it's uh, very shameful on my part. This is a little bit like a tower experience for a Lutheran pastor teaching philosophy, right? All, everything just kind of tumbles into place once you hear that and, and see what's going on grammatically and, and in terms of the vocabulary there. Um, this is St. Paul who wrote this, who writes in 1 Corinthians 1, we, that's we apostles, we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the sophos, as in philosophy, Christ the wisdom of God. Um, it's Paul who is talking about the theology of the cross there. I would like to call it a philosophy of the cross too. Um, and then, you know, we've got all of this stuff that kind of cascades together. And again, we go back to um, Acts 17 to see how Paul puts that to work. So uh, let's, let me make one more point here, okay? And that's that word philosophy. It's entirely possible that every one of the thousands of folks listening to your broadcast right now has the wrong understanding of philosophy in that passage. <laughs> because philosophy does not mean that department over there in the humanities building that teaches ethics and the other PHIL courses. Philosophy is the ancient and traditional word for all learning. So all studying is being mentioned there. Mm -hmm. um, studying, teaching, learning that is done in absentia from Christ, apart from Christ, is inevitably, we can check this out empirically and intellectually, it's inevitably based on only human tradition and on the stoichia of the world that's fundamentally opposed to Christ, the ABCs of this world. The, the only salvation, and I mean this um, very deliberately talking about savior theology, which is the right way to go, and, and this is what Paul is saying flat out there with the kata Christun, according to Christ himself. Um, this is the only way to go. So, if you will, I guess even if you won't, I think that Colossians 2 is telling us that what we today refer to as higher education, and I'm not limiting it to that, but what we refer to as higher education is either going to be done according to human tradition and the basic principles of this world, which makes it bad education, or it's going to be done according to Christ, the wisdom of God, speaking from that department that's now only called philosophy. Um, this is what we have longed for down through all the centuries of Greek philosophy prior to Christ. You've got to wonder, with all of their, their fight for an objective standard for morality and ethics, what would Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle have given us had somebody brought the Hebrew scriptures to them? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm just saying. Um, after, after Christ, of course, it's a culpable ignorance. Mm -hmm. You know, as Paul says, um, God has put up with your philosophical nonsense until now, but, yeah. you know, God has come. God died for us. God rose from the dead. You guys have been hearing the eyewitness reports echoing around the Mediterranean basin. Um, and and now, now, if you deny Christ, well, um, there's no excuse. Exactly. And the... Uh, that's the movement of scripture. It's how they, uh, it's how the scriptures talk about nations, right? That um, 
God ordered the nations. He put people in certain places that they may grope and try to find Christ. That's what Plato's trying to do. That's, That's what Aristotle's trying to do. And then Christ comes and he is the fulfillment of all wisdom, all knowledge. And therefore, he has to go out to all nations. So this is not a diversification. It's not a fracturing. It's rather a, a uniting in Christ. That's right. And here's, you know, here's where our Hauptartikel, our thesis statement article of doctrine uh, comes in. Uh, we were talking just now about the incarnation, and that can do the heavy lifting here, but universal justification. Wow. Um, that, that when God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, there was no one who was left out. Absolutely no one. Not, not disabled people, not unborn people, not people with all the blessings of health and intellect, you know, that, that you might see in a classroom in, a, in most universities today. Um, everybody, without exception. Uh, and of course, that, that also ups the stakes for what's going on if you refuse to go katakristan with your teaching. Um, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what you don't want is you obviously don't want unity. Mm -hmm. You don't want unity in God. You don't want this universal unity of God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, this is, you know, a zillion times more serious than talking to a, a family of a, a, a soldier whose body was brought home in a flag-draped coffin. And then those people saying, well, I never asked to have your kid die for me, so I don't, I don't accept this. I don't want to hear any more about it. Uh, except this is God's son. Amen. How how can we not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how can we not love and honor, fear and serve and obey Him? Yeah, and as as He Himself says that when the Son of Man is lifted up from the earth, He will draw all nations to Himself. It's just so consistent yeah, yeah. in Scripture. And then uh, in in First Corinthians also, when Paul talks about the wisdom of Christ, he says. He says that Christ has become our wisdom <laughs> and our righteousness and our redemption, but he's become our wisdom. Uh, so any talk about race, any talk about, well, anything uh, has to be from now on, from the, the death and resurrection of the God-man has to be kata Christan, according to Christ. Well, Yes, and let's be, let's be very, very clear, if I may say, let's be very clear that there is no excuse for not basing everything on Christ. So when we've got people like Ibrahim Kendi teaching what he's teaching, when we've got people who espouse and emulate Kendi and teach him to other people, um, this is that hollow and deceptive kind of knowledge and learning that we have been warned against on the basis of apostolic verbatim authority in the scriptures. Yes, and that Pastor professors like you have been told by Christ himself, by our Lord, to oppose. And you've done it. God bless right. you for doing it. Right. You are uh, in my prayers and my family's prayers every night. My, my kids know your name because we pray for Dr. Schultz after we pray for Grandma and Grandpa. God bless you, <laughs> and God bless uh, Concordia University, Wisconsin. Um, next time, uh, we'll be discussing the second word in the woke acronym, D-I-E. So that'll be inclusion. And we'll look forward to having Dr. Schultz back to discuss. Thank you so much, Dr. Schultz, for honoring us with being the very first guest 
on the podcast of Christian Culture. And God bless you as, the, as you fight the good fight of faith. Uh, thank you so much, Pastor. It's just what we Lutheran pastors do, right? Somebody says recant, and we say, oh, no, we're going to confess. <laughs> Amen. Stand on scriptures and conscience, which is bound by scriptures. All right. Well, thank you all uh, listeners who are, uh, who are listening, all our viewers. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and, and learned from this conversation, especially from Dr. Schultz. Please share it with your friends, your family. Subscribe to our channel, however you're listening, and subscribe to our magazine, which is also called Christian Culture, a magazine for Lutherans. Um, and then you'll be getting notifications when a new podcast is up. Check out our website, again, lutherclassical.org. Until next time, I'm your host, Pastor Christian Preuss. God bless you. God bless our families and our congregations, and God bless Luther Classical College for Jesus' sake. Thanks. <laughs>